Hello, I'm Tony Collins and this is the Rugby Reloaded Plus podcast. My guest this week is Mark Flanagan, journalist and author of a brand new book that's published on this very day. It's called The Invincibles, the inside story of the 1982 Kangaroos, the team that changed rugby forever, and it's from Pitch Publishing. It's not only a good read, but it's also an important book about a pivotal moment in the history of rugby league in both hemispheres, and, as the book discusses, the tour also had a profound effect on Rugby Union too. So, welcome to the show, Mark. Just give us a bit of background to the to the 1982 tour, because it was kind of, although we look back on it and see it as a pivotal moment, um, there's a kind of back history to what was going on in uh, Anglo-Australian Rugby League relations before the tour actually took place. The sort of build-up to what happened in 82 really goes back almost 25 years um, people might remember the 1970 tour, which John Whiteley, who coached in 82, was also the coach, the great side that included Mal Reilly and Roger Millward and Jimmy Thompson, who um, they came from behind to win a, the series in 1972-1. And, and people both in both sides of the world, in Australia and the UK, expected that to be a springboard forward for, for another era of dominance in the same way that Great Britain dominated in the late 50s and early 60s. But actually, in hindsight, when you look back and plot what happened, it was kind of a almost a, an aberration what happened in 70. The, the build-up to 82 really begins in kind of the early 60s when um, Australian, Australia was getting so much more professional, um, which was led by a group of guys who decided in the early 60s that the way that Australia had been coaching and been training their coaches was wrong and and they started a, a revolution in the early 60s which led built up and built up if you can imagine that that they trained thousands and thousands of coaches in the 60s so the the stars of 82 who were obviously uh, you know four and five and were at school they got the benefit of this new way of coaching so the the wave of extraordinary talent that we had in 82 has its roots in the early 60s. And they were a product of a system which was coherent, um, was building on all the strengths uh, that Australia had. So the likes of Peter Sterling, Mel Meninga, Wayne Pearce, Wally Lewis and Brett Kenny all came through as a result of all the changes that were made in the early 60s. In comparison, we had no kind of coherent uh, coaching strategy um, we had a, a couple of guys who did it, did it part-time for the RFL, and it was very much reliant on great players who became coaches but had no kind of formal coaching qualifications. So the whole system in the UK was very disjointed, uh, and the whole system in the Australia was very coherent, and it all came to a head in 82, and we, we all know what happened there. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's often forgotten about is the 1979 Great Britain tour to Australia, which was also whitewashed by the Australians and was basically, it just sounds like it was a dreadful tour, both on and off the field. And so you would have thought that would have given some indication about what was possibly going to happen on the 1982 tour. Yeah, I think it's one of those things in hindsight, we kind of look back, don't we? The, the 79 was the first one that Australia had won 3-0 for a very long time. Um, 78, the famous Dad's Army test at Odsall with the front row that had an age of, I think it was 105, Lockwood, Fisher and Mills. Um, and it was quite a close affair in 78. Um, 79 was 
the first time that we lost 3-0, we got demolished in the first test. I think it was 35-0. But I think the fact that we were at home, people were sort of looking more towards 78. And I think in 79, it wasn't very well organised tour. Um, things were happening off the pitch, which I go into in quite a lot of detail, actually. Um, but it was the first, the critically, it was the first 3-0 for a long time. And I don't think people um, in the UK and some in Australia didn't think it would happen again on British soil. You know, the home advantage factor would, would obviously level things up. But that was the theory. Anyway, it would level things up. But obviously, as it transpired, that's not how it happened. But as we yeah. know now, as we know now, the pattern actually was 79 was just the taste of things to come. The other thing that was going on, which again, I think at the time perhaps masked what was going on in Australia, was that the early 80s were a uh, a time when British rugby league was actually on an upward curve. We'd had the terrible time in the early 70s when uh, attendances dropped through the floor and people said, oh, the game's dying. Then David Oxley and David Howes took over in charge of the RFL. And you get things like the old Hull final in 1980, crowds are really on the rise, and there's a great sense of optimism in British rugby league. And then the kangaroos arrive. Yeah, no, it, it's really interesting the, what happened after 1970. Um, you know, you would have thought it would have been a great platform to build on. And then the following tour, uh, the following year, the Kiwis came over in 71. And I think the aggregate attendance for the three home test matches was something about 13,500. Um, yeah, I was 4, one of them at Castleford, Castleford yeah. yeah. I remember you telling me that, and it was—it it just felt. I remember I spent ten hours speaking to John Whiteley about all kinds of different things, and you know he mentioned about the, that lost opportunity. If that seventy side had stuck together, um, they would have been unbeatable for three years, and it just seemed to just sort of fall apart so quickly, which was so indicative of what was going on at the RFL in terms of. Um, you know, the the lack of thinking, the lack of the, the arrogance, really, that this would go on forever. When Howes and Oxley kind of took over in the mid-70s and they kind of embraced TV and sponsorship, yeah, th then things started to change. So the profile of rugby league improved massively. We had the um, floodlight, uh, floodlight trophy experiment and then the John Player trophy. And obviously, you know, the, 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 the all-hull final, as you pointed out, in 1980, and things... You know, rugby league in terms of reaching a wider public consciousness was really starting to pick up and and, and making stars of, of uh, you know, the grandstand on a Saturday afternoon as well. It was all over Saturday afternoon TV, which was important at a time when, you know, you didn't get live domestic football league games. So there was a, there was a positive feeling from that perspective and money was coming into the game. And the, I think, Gates... Gates in terms of domestically bottomed out in the mid 70s as well. So from that perspective, things were on an upward curve. Unfortunately, the upward curve in Australia was so dramatically better uh, from a player development perspective. That side of it was being overlooked and the quality of the rugby on the pitch wasn't being reflected in the UK um, compared to, you know, the things that were happening off the field in terms of sponsorship and that critically was the reason we were so embarrassed by the Australians in 82. 
because there was also a controversy about the selection of the kangaroo team. I mean, again, looking back, you think, well, this was, you know, it was the rugby league equivalent of Brazil in 1970. But at the time, there was a, a lot of arguments about whether the right players had been selected to, to come to Britain in 82. Absolutely. I mean, it is incredible to think that there was criticism of it. Um, one journalist, uh, one of the most respected journalists in Australia, um, said that you know it was a it was an old squad and um, he couldn't believe some of the players had been missed out. I mean, uh, the the thing at the time that there were so many good players in Australia, it was easy for Australian journalists to pick on. Why haven't you picked him? Um, a couple of the kind of players who um, missed out missed out because they didn't want to go. Terry Lamb was one who who was so brilliant in '86. He was getting married, so he didn't come. Um, and there was a there was a winger as well who was a, was a bit of a shoe in who didn't come. Um, there was also concerns about a lack of experience. People like Gray Meady, um, who who'd been twice before, uh, didn't come. Um, so a lot of the you know the people who became stars were 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 not even that well known in in Australia. For example, Wayne Pearce, who obviously became a revelation in the UK, didn't even play in any of the State of Origin games. Um, he'd only had one full season with Balmain, who who weren't one of the better teams. He was considered a, a pick from left field. Sterling hadn't played State of Origin um, as well. so And he went, obviously, we know what happened with Peter Sterling. So, it, you know, it was just actually inspired selections by the selectors. And that uh, I spoke to Frank Stanton, who was the Australian coach, a couple of times. He identified the the kind of risk inverted commas that the, the selectors took in picking um, some of these players. And obviously, it, it, you know, it really kind of worked in so many ways. That said, Parramatta were at the start of this great period of dominance. And I, there's one performance which I identify in the book. Um, it was just after uh, a couple of weeks before um, they were set to, to, to announce the Australian squad on a, on a horrendous pitch Parramatta uh, demolished. Um, I can't remember who they, who they were playing, but they, they won sort of thirty-four nil. And, and Kenny and Sterling and Growth were absolutely brilliant in horrendous conditions, throwing the ball about in a way that you would never have seen a UK team do. And that kind of performance, I think, confirmed their status as special. And we all know what happened a few weeks later. And I think, yeah, I think that became clear as soon as they arrived because they they played the first game against Hull KR, which was a fairly rough and um, tough old-fashioned toe match. Yes. But after that, they kind of got into their stride and it became clear that there was something very unusual going on as the tour progressed. Yes, it was. I mean, the Hull KR game is, is really interesting in so many different respects. Um, lots of people who would go into play against them, and, and obviously John Whiteley and the manager Colin Hutton were in attendance. And three players were sent off in the first half: two Australians, David Watkins in the hooker for KR, uh, Rod Reddy, and Les Boyd. The usual um, suspects. And, uh, and, yes, usual suspects. And Hull KR actually scored two tries in in the first half. Um, and we thought, okay, well, this is you know Hull, Hull KR giving it a go. There was a great um, great break by Steve Hartley, who many rugby league fans will remember, who was a, a wonderfully explosive standoff 
um, he needs surge through. And, and those, you know, it was, it was nip and tuck in the first half. And then with 11 men, Australia ran away with it in the second half. And obviously, okay, I did okay. And people thought, oh, okay, well, the Aussies are, are good, but they're not great. But extraordinary thing that Hull KR scored two tries. Australia would only go on to concede another five tries in the rest of the tour. Um, so, you know, it was it, that that performance by Hull KR in the first half kind of stands alone compared to what happened afterwards. And obviously with, with full teams, Australia put in some of the great performances we've ever seen on these shores. You know, looking back and doing all the research for the book, you know, it's an absolute privilege to watch sport being played at that level at a time where we just didn't see things that they were doing. You know, in 82, in the early 80s, they were doing things that we never saw before. I remember speaking to um, uh, the whole KR second row, Chris Burton, and he was he had a, a fascinating chat with Chris Burton, who played against them for Hull KR and, and, in the, and in the second test. And he said that the thing that the Aussies did, they said they'd have four or five runners coming from all different directions, and you never knew who was going to get the ball. And he said, we, never, we, we just didn't see that. You know, you'd have players coming from 30 yards and 20 yards, and they'd be running at right angles, uh, sorry, at 45-degree angles, and nobody knew who was, who was going to get the ball at any point. And because obviously our coaches, you know, that would consider that a wasted effort, a wasted energy. That's that you know you can't you can't be wasting energy making dummy runs to that extent. But because they were so fit and so powerful, they could do it, and they and they did it for eighty minutes, and it bamboozled defenses, um, and uh, produced moves and tries that were just extraordinary. And, and and the great thing as well for the Australians was the reaction of the British crowds, who immediately. You know, there was no kind of booing or anything of, of Australian tries. Most of the tries that they scored were, were welcomed with widespread applause because the, the rugby league, you know, the, the, the rugby fans in the UK almost immediately understood they were watching something special and something history making. Yeah, it was almost like you were watching a, a higher life form. Yes, absolutely. And, I, yeah. and this became absolutely clear on the national stage at the first test match that was played at Hull's Boothbury Park, where it was probably the best performance of certainly of rugby league and possibly of any football code that had ever appeared live on British TV. And that had a tremendous national impact, didn't it? Absolutely extraordinary. I mean, there's so many amazing things about that game, which I've, I think I've watched 12 times now. But first and foremost, the thing to point out is that Britain had more attacking opportunities in Australia. I think the, I think the penalty count was something like 17-9 or 19-7. Sorry, the, the exact number escapes me. Britain had so many opportunities and the kind of one-dimensional, plodding, slow, predictable nature of their attack was shown up in the most extraordinary way by the kind of dynamic, fluid, inspiring way that the Australians, when they had the opportunity to attack, did so and did so with, you know, absolute brilliance. You know, the passing out of the tackle. You know, Wayne Pierce would be hitting the line and he'd be, he'd, he'd be hitting the line at full pelt and he'd, he'd almost come from another county, the way, it's, you know, the distance that he'd started his run. It was phenomenal. The reaction was phenomenal. Australian players were coming out of the dressing room and were mobbed by British fans. And one Australian player was was he, he couldn't believe the reaction of 
of the British fans, the reaction thereafter from rugby people, not just rugby league people, rugby people, you know, rugby union journalists were talking about, you know, this is something that um, it's obvious that this team with two extra players would be any rugby union team in the country. They'd they'd beat all the, the home nations teams quite easily. Um, Dick Greenwood, the, the, the rugby union coaching, the rugby union coach at the time, said that this video should be sent to every rugby union uh, club in the country and shown to every rugby union player in terms of how to play rugby. Speaking yeah. to Frank Stanton, for, speaking to Frank Stanton um, earlier this year, he he was really kind of two things. He was stunned by how good they, actually good they were, but also the reaction of the media, of the sort of wider rugby public to what happened. I mean, he, he he was getting calls from from rugby union clubs in the Midlands and the Northwest and the Northeast asking if they could come and watch them train. Um, they were completely unprepared for what happened um, after and, and the seismic effect, which went on for decades from, from, from that one extraordinary game. Absolutely, because I think the, the impression that you had as a rugby league supporter at the time was like, this is it. This is how rugby league should be played. This is what its promise has always been. And now the kangaroos have actually demonstrated just what an incredible game the game could, the sport can actually be. So I think for British rugby league supporters, nobody really minded their heavy defeats because it was basically like watching... Um, you know, it was like watching Michelangelo and the great Italian artists do their stuff, but yeah. they were they were wearing rugby boots. So it was an interesting phenomenon that people really enjoyed these games, despite the fact that uh, Great Britain and their local club sides were being ground into the into the dirt in very much. In terms of British rugby league after the tour, mm. so obviously the Kangaroos went through the tour unbeaten, as you mentioned, they, they only had seven tries scored against them. And only one in a test match. I remember when Steve Evans scored the try at Headingley, mm. it was almost as if Britain had won the game. The cheer wouldn't have been uh, any louder. Um, yes. But it had a profound impact on the future of British rugby league, didn't it? Absolutely. I mean, it was, you know, David Howes, who was the press officer, who I spoke to, who was, you know, David is a particularly engaging person who who's a great raconteur in his own right. And, very colourful and interesting in, his, in the way he explains things. He he said it wasn't so much that, you know, um, uh, what's the, I'm just trying to remember his phrase, but he he likened it to a nuclear event in, in the RFL um, in terms of the impact. Um, things had to change. The people who were pushing for change, so people like himself, David Oxley, um, Phil Larder, who'd just been taken on as the director of coaching, and kind of progressive coaches domestically like Mal Reilly, uh, were desperate for um, radical change at the top of the RFL. And one of the first things that they actually did do was remove the um, system of committee picking the team. So Frank Myler, who replaced um, John Whiteley, was had complete autonomy over who was selected and, and the squad. Interestingly, John was given a bit of wriggle room at the early start of his tenure in, in, the, in 1980, but when performances didn't go well, quickly the RFL committee wrestled back um, power. And even though John sat in the selection uh, meetings for 82, he wasn't 
you know, he didn't have, he was given the team and, and that, and, and was told to get on with it. Frank Myler was, was given complete autonomy, could pick the team. They also then quickly um, reduced the, um, the, the committee. So there was a, a committee of seven who would meet every two weeks rather than the full council, which is a representative from every club. So you're talking about 30 odd thirty odd club chairman who were sitting down to decide things. They formed a, a subcommittee of seven, who a management committee, who were told to get on with running the game, and they met every two weeks, and that was hoped it would speed things up. Also, a really interesting development was Phil Larder, who was able to bring in a, a new coaching training scheme. And one of the interesting things they did was insist that all coaches who coach professional rugby league clubs um, had to pass a new coaching exam, which caused a lot of controversy. Because <laughs> certain coaches who thought they knew better were thought, well, I'm not going to get bloody told by Phil Larder how to coach my rugby league team. So there was all this kind of stuff going on in the sort of 18 months after the Invincibles. Eventually, the Phil Larder kind of um, attitude in terms of we've got to be progressive. This is what they do in Australia. Phil spent three months in Australia and the USA studying the coaching methods of Parramatta, Balmain and Manly. And he went to um, see the Chicago, uh, sorry, the LA Rams train and brought over, uh, it was very progressive in terms of, and 80, without 82, all those changes that there were then forced wouldn't have happened because they would have just sort of carried on. If it had been a tight 2-1, it would have carried on. You know, there's nothing that much wrong with the game. But obviously, it, you know, what happened in the first test in particular just completely laid bare all the failings of the British game in one very concise 80-minute rugby league match. Um, so there were, the, the effect was seismic on, on the game. And then also the, the sort of the final thing that happened was the, the end of the transfer ban between players coming from the UK uh, and Australia, which then led to obviously Peter Sterling came to Hull. He was the first big one. Astonishingly, Wally Lewis went to Wakefield for, 20, uh, for 12 weeks, earning uh, £1,200 a week, which is 10 times what his teammates were earning, which didn't go down well with the rest of the team. But... The first game that Wally Lewis played, there was seven and a half thousand at Bellevue when they'd only been getting gates of two and a half thousand. And this wave of overseas players coming in, um, you know, w was very important. And the positive effects that playing with Peter Sterling or John Ferguson at Wigan and Brett Kenny at Wigan and all the other guys who came over, Mal Meninga came to St. Helens, was hugely positive in raising the profile of the game to the point where, obviously, in the mid late 80s, rugby league was never higher in terms of, uh, you know, publicity and 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 getting exposure exposure nationally outside its heartlands. Yeah, Matt Meninga at some point in the late 80s, early 90s was actually voted BBC's overseas sports personality That's, of the year, yeah, which absolutely. is incredible to think about that could happen again. Yeah, well, you know, never. Well, it just won't happen again, and that's a, uh, that's a sad fact. Of you know, some of the greatest sportsmen over the last twenty years have been playing their trade in the NRL, and you know, the likes of Billy Slater and Darren Lockyer and all these guys who are Andrew Johns, who would you know, people who aren't rugby league fans just won't have heard of them. Never mind voting them in. It's just they won't. You know, they just won't have heard of them when. 
you know, people will still remember Malmö, if football fans and cricket fans and rugby union fans will still remember Malmeninger and Peter Sterling and, and the rest of them. Yeah, which is a sad point. Just, yeah. just to kind of bring the discussion around to a close, what in terms of long-term implications for rugby league did the Kangaroo Tour have? Because it was obviously a turning point in the history of the game. And although for a time there was a lot of enthusiasm that eventually Britain will catch up with Australia, where on the international field, uh, Great Britain, England is, is, is no closer in many ways. Um, yes. And in terms of the overall development of the game, then obviously the NRL is, is light years ahead of, of Super League and seems as though it will be for the, at least for the foreseeable future. Yeah, I mean... You know, we, we kind of finished the book with the, with this sort of long term point and looking ahead. Obviously, it's always going to be extremely difficult to catch the NRL because rugby league is their national sport. So they are always going to get the the, the top athletes, the guys who are brilliant at everything uh, in Australia. Nine times out of ten, are going to pick rugby league, whereas over in this country with with football, soccer, and all the other distractions that they have, it's going to be difficult to get that large enough talent pool to then produce players who can uh, compete with Australia over, over a longer period. And, and that's that long-standing issue is never going to go away. The, the sort of the long-term effects of the Australians in terms of the kangaroos of 82 is a lot to do with how we train and how they brought in a revolution of, which goes back to Jack Gibson, who was the first person to study Australian sorry, American um, NRL method. And if you watch any Super League tr- club train now, they basically train in the same way that the 82 Australians train. Um, the, the, the emphasis on plyometrics and power and and subtlety and, you know, subtlety and, and all these things that are so important. You know, the Australians used to spend hours, the 82 Australians used to spend hours practicing twisting and turning out the tackle to get the ball away. Uh, and, and you see that with tackle bags now in terms of the, the, the British players. The, 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 I suppose the sad thing really that we thought probably would happen that hasn't kind of happened is, is the way that International Rugby League would become uh, a growing force on a sort of the international sporting stage. And that window of opportunity that they effectively created and we saw in the 80s and early 90s some fantastic battles and Mal really, you know, led the Great Britain team so well and came so close on so many opportunities. The late eighties and nineties, the it, that kind of international rugby league stage is withered away, withered away in the late nineties and early noughties, and we don't have that prominence, particularly you know when the rugby league World Cup will come around, it won't have the status that it should have, and uh, and and that's a sad thing, and that's because. Um, opportunities were missed and we didn't grasp it at the time but it's still um it's still an extraordinary game and um every fantastic rugby league player who's going to play in the in the next rugby league world cup you will see parts of the 1982 australian team in their game in the way they play um had a fantastic chat with mal Reilly. Um, he even says that, you know, in many respects, in the way that our Australian team played, we've gone backwards in many respects. In if, if you watch a lot of Super League games, the the kind of innovation has largely gone. It's very kind of 
Um, it's quite, you know, it's it's a bit too kind of obvious what what's going to happen from the play of the ball. Um, Mal was saying, and it's too regulated and too formulated these days. Whereas the genius of eighty the eighty two Australians was, you're never quite sure what was going to happen, and and that side of the game has been lost a little bit. So um, obviously, you do see it in certain players who were who've just got that kind of X factor to them, but. The, the, basically, the whole team in '82 had the X factor. You know, we've not even mentioned Craig Young, who 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 could turn up in the centre and go past a player and flip a player and flip the ball out of the tackle from the back of his hand and find the perfect pass to somebody. You yeah, know, and he was an old-fashioned prop in a lot of ways. Yeah, you know, it's a 17 and a half stone prop. Um, you know, they were remarkable from one to 13. And and I said to Frank Stanton watching it, you know, it was, it was an honour and a privilege to to write this book really because. You know, these teams, you know, that they should go down as one of the 10 greatest sports teams of all time in terms of what they did, the effect, in terms of, the, 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 you know, the, how they raised the bar from down on the floor to this level that we just, we didn't even imagine it was possible. Um, and, and that's their kind of legacy is that, um, I think, uh, you know, the, the, the last line in the book is almost that if you watch it back now, you know, nothing has been lost in the, in the intervening 37 years, the the brilliance of how uh, the brilliance of that side hasn't been lost in in the last four decades. It it shines with the sort of same sort of clarity as it, it did in '82, and that is you know is testament to just how good they were. Absolutely. I mean, I think their their rugby's equivalent of the um, 1970 Brazilian soccer team, the all-time greatest. Yeah. On yeah. that note, uh, we've run out of time. So I'd like to say thanks very much, Matt, for an absolutely fascinating interview. Just to remind you, the book is called The Invincibles, the inside story of the 1982 Kangaroos, the team that changed rugby forever. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Rugby Reloading podcast. If you want to follow me on Twitter, my name is at Collins Tony. And Mark? Yes, I'm at, at the Mark Flanagan. And uh, I've be, already been tweeting plenty today about about the book, and obviously will be for the whole of the week in terms of publicising it, and um, and hopefully people can buy it. It's available on online uh, as an ebook as well, and obviously it will be available in all major bookstores across the north of England. Excellent. So remember to follow Mark if you want to dig a bit deeper into the history of rugby and the other football codes. Take a look at the Rugby Reloaded website at www.rugbyreloaded.com. Until next week, thanks for listening.